0: For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. By now, Reuben Carter has been locked up for 13 years, telling court after court he is not a murderer. The same time here in Bushwick, A 15-year-old boy, Lesra Martin, meets a group of Canadians from Toronto who will change the course of his life forever. And together, they will change the life of Reuben Hurricane Carter. Carter and artists were found guilty of gunning down three people, triple murder in a bar. Carter said
1: he and Artis did not, would not, and could not commit the crime of triple murder for which they
2: have been found guilty.
3: This is The Hurricane Tapes, a 13-part series based on the discovery of candid cassettes that Reuben made before he died. These tapes reveal a dark anti-hero, a self-confessed monster. Nobody wanted my findings to come out. Reuben Carter and John Artis are the only two men ever to have been charged with this crime. Solving it is something that cops, investigators, journalists, they all gave up on doing that years ago. But we've spent more than a year investigating the case, speaking to almost everyone involved. So did Reuben Carter and John Artis shoot and kill three people at the Lafayette Bar and Grill on June 17, 1966, while the Hurricane Tapes tells the story and it might just solve the cats.
2: Um, right, the process uh, is back, and this is a different kind of the process. I've spoken to different people who've kind of spoken about their lives, but this one, what I'm really struck by is the process of how you've made uh, a podcast that I was just enthralled by and just blown away with the the kind of commitment that you needed to show to make it. Now I'm going to get this line out very quickly because it's it's on my mind and I imagine, certainly you Steve wanted to say it. A million times. This is the story of the <laughs> hurricane. Okay, uh, Ruben Hurricane Carter was a, a boxer, and uh, he he was imprisoned alongside uh, I forget his John Arthur yeah. um, twice. Yeah, uh, and it's just an incredible story. A lot of people will know the Bob Dylan song, but they'll also know the film, uh, The Hurricane, with Denzel Washington, and uh, you two guys. Uh so you're you're a producer Joel. Aren't you? I am. I'm I'm a producer. And and specifically with the World Service at at, at the BBC yeah. and, and audio. Um, yeah, so
1: content. we both worked for BBC World Service uh, at the time and uh, I concentrated on longer form uh, programming so and and documentary making but sport but it wasn't really sport. So like stories that were very loosely connected to sport. Yes. Uh, but actually, we were really about people and events. Mm, and stuff sometimes like incredibly loosely. <laughs> sometimes, yeah, you I mean, had honestly, to crowbar things in. The, yeah. guy, the guy who,
3: the footballer who made one of those beer hats that you can drink out of. <laughs> wow. These were amongst his pre Hurricane <laughs> <late> highlights. who's been
2: given a little boost by this. Yeah, uh, well, uh, no, so. I,
1: I don't know. I don't know. Um, I, <laughs> I was award winning before the <laughs> Hurricane But, um, yeah, no, I mean, uh, so this. This this was is perfectly um, set up for for the kind of things that I like yeah. to do, uh, but I wish I could take credit for thinking it's time to tell this story again. But annoyingly, that is his. Okay.
3: yeah. So um, so the the way this started was. I was in the car on the way to the Lake District with my then-girlfriend. And this actually just kind of explains how long this process has taken. I had a girlfriend, and now I have a wife. Right. <laughs> now yeah, you're divorced. It's the same girl. <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh, we were in the car going to the Lake District, and the Bob Dylan song came on, and I was like, oh, love this, know all the words. Yes. She had no idea why I knew all the words. And it was cause, and then I was like, oh, because you've seen the film, nothing. So we watched the film together, and then I was like, huh. 1967 conviction. It's exactly 50 years ago. So this is 2017, we were getting into it. And I'd started thinking, you know, we'll make something about the 50th anniversary of this wrongful conviction and it'll be an hour documentary. But then, like, once we started chipping away at it, I realised very quickly I was like there is so much more to this so that's where I recruited Joel yeah.
2: well, well that's it for me so, so again a bit more context for you guys so the guys put together The, the Hurricane Tapes which was a podcast series about Ruben Carter um, and what you won't know until you start listening to it. and I want to be careful here in terms of, I want to talk about some of the themes of the the series but I don't want to give it away so really, nice spoilers. But, no spoilers no no he was yes he was <laughs> convicted I mean, we I mean, can't, can't say that twice we can't say that so um, listening to it what I was amazed by was how much time you had to put into this and um, we were chatting just before we started 2017 this started so how long was the whole process between having an idea to do it and it going out so I came up with the idea in
3: August in the August and then I got you on board in the September so August 2017 and the series finished in April 2019. Yeah, right. so, so
1: 18 months year and half so, yeah. The, yeah. basically a year and, and a so half. And so with
2: that in mind, when did you know that, oh, this is bigger than I thought, or did you look at it and when go- When you wanted to talk to us. <laughs> <laughs> right, we knew, we, we knew we'd made it, we knew we'd made it. No, but did you, when did you realise that, wow, this isn't just a story that we can tell, this is something that we can investigate you did. It was the
1: tapes, wasn't it? I Uh, I don't know. I think for me, well, it wasn't. It was before that, actually. So I've got to say, again, it's really annoying, but Steve had done a lot of work in that month before he'd come to me. So it's not like he comes to me and says to me, I've got this really good idea, but I don't know how to do it. Only you can help me. He was like, I've already organised interviews with John Artis and The Judge Um, and this one and that one. And so I was like, okay, this is great. This is a no-brainer for me because... The hard work is already yeah, yeah. done. Right, right, right. And this will be, you, you know, three flights. Yeah, a to, to couple America, of weeks in, in America. America and a week off the rotor. Jobs are good, and that's yeah. three weeks. Don't have to worry about. <laughs> Two years later, uh, and um,
2: <laughs> and whilst I'm there, there's this guy who makes these beer cans. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah,
1: exactly. <laughs> so, yeah, I'm sure I can find another story like that. No, so um, and and so, but, but our very first interview. Remember who our first interview was. Our first interview
3: was uh, Tom Kidring no, almost or Jim Hirsch.
1: It was l- Lozy. Oh, um, uh, right. So, so basically, we we'd gathered. A, I mean, a very very large list of people that we were already due to go and see, mm. and they they were all of the of the of the same opinion that Carter had had this terrible injustice done to him, and that was fine because that was the story as we understood it, yes. as Dylan sang it as. As Washington portrayed it. Yeah. And then we realised that there was another side to this. Uh, this There was a group of people, and it was basically it was because of the film, wasn't it? Yeah. Because Washington was up for an Oscar, and mm-hmm. basically he didn't get the Oscar because this pr- protest group campaigned against him. Uh, not against it, him per se, but the, the idea that he was innocent. Yeah, the, the idea that he was telling this story in Hollywood that this guy was completely innocent. And so. We, we started looking a little bit more closely at the, at the idea that the story as told in the film or by nearly everyone who's come to look at this case, mm. that there was another side. And I think, if I'm completely honest, we got in touch with more people who were of the opinion that Carter was involved or he was guilty. Right. And I really wanted them to be nutcases.
2: I, uh, yeah. Yeah. Well, So that was, that was one thing I was, I was desperate to ask you. I'll ask you now then. Um, how difficult is it to be, and this whole, this whole case and a lot of the conversation I want to have with you is about being biased, about being certain about something and maybe not being right about that, about the justice system mm-hmm. and, and how that plays a part in all of it. How difficult was it to stay neutral and not become biased yourselves when making and looking into this Incredible subject it, that so many Yeah,
3: it was very difficult, but actually, it was not difficult because of Reuben Carter, it was difficult because of John Artis. Right. Uh, because it's very difficult to separate the two men.
2: Mm. So, just to give people a bit of uh, background yeah. on that, t- tell us about John Artis. Okay, so heart.
3: John Artis was convicted alongside Reuben Carter of the murders. And without giving too much away about the series, um, it's definitely fair to say that on the night of the murders, around the time of the murders, it's pretty much impossible to separate them. So essentially, if you believe John Artis is innocent, then you really have to believe Reuben Carter is innocent and vice versa. Now, to be honest, from almost from day one, we learned some really disturbing things about Reuben Carter. And he is the guy who's been made out to be this, you know, absolutely wronged hero. Um, But his actual character you know, he was a, a pretty horrific human being in his early years. Yes. You know, he's a guy who, who was rightly put behind bars more than once. He's a guy who, you know, one of the crimes committed was like mugging an old woman. He did some pretty horrific yeah. stuff. Um John Artis is absolutely the opposite of that. Just a lovely kid growing up, high school track star. Wouldn't say a
2: boot to a goose, and, and did you feel that when you then met him? Oh, because definitely. Because he's still alive, so he's in all these. Uh, well, well, in we, we,
1: we did a really long interview with John because he's so engaging. And obviously, his story is compelling, but he's so engaging and pleasant. And afterwards, I think we both looked at each other. Once John had left, and we were like, Well, there's no way There's no way that that man put five bullets in, into a woman yep. from That's close range. Yeah. There's, there's just no way. And. Um, So yeah, that did make it a bit of a challenge, but I think um, the the interesting part is that we met so many people on this journey who had taken a position one way or the other, and they were incapable and unwilling to countenance anything that didn't fit with what they thought. Mm. And so actually, it became really important to both of us that we didn't have a sacred cow. Mm. that we didn't have a position that we were defending, that we were open to understanding
2: anything, whether it fitted with what we we wanted to think yeah. or not. So would you two talk about it? Would you go, Would you two, or would you just leave your cow to the side? <laughs> if you'd better you talk about
3: anything else. We were yeah. constantly in conversation right, of what yeah. do we think happened here, and, and um, our opinions changed dramatically back and forth during the course of the series which i think you can probably hear in the series is it's that thing of like i have a very one side of journalism that i have a very strong view on is if you have an idea of a story and go out and you do that story even if it becomes in the face of things that you're learning then you're not doing yourself justice as a journalist mm. if the if the goalposts change as you go along you've got to go with them and I think that's one of the things I enjoyed most about making this is you can tell as we go through the series yeah. we're, you know, we're not starting with a point of view it's not like episode 1 begins with a, a tease of what happens in episode 13 mm. because when episode 1 was made episode, we haven't even done anything for it ep- when episode 9 was made we mm. haven't done ep- anything for the last few episodes so we meandered all over the yeah. show
2: so, so then from so from a lot of people, uh, you know, this will go on YouTube, the series called The Process, so I wanted to touch on also, just as, as two guys who make stuff, mm-hmm. what was your process in terms of how we're going to tell this story? Was it as simple as, is it research, then interviews, then piecing it together? Because what I find amazing is what I, I love the, the storytelling of this whole thing, the commitment to the storytelling from both of you, and then... Doing that, not in a visual medium, but bringing it to life via a podcast, and I'm offering, I'm saying a lot here. But what was your process of putting together this whole thing then? What was, um, you know, because I think you do have that blank page, don't you? Well, you see, I, th- I think different because, different
1: ways. Uh, we've both got background in radio, so for us to put together something in radio and bring it to life is what we do every day. So. That we didn't, we did. Oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think
3: that one way to explain that, and it was something that was mentioned to us early in the process of doing this, is to adopt like a bit of the New York Times style. And what I mean by that is, um, it's the idea that, and one of my mates is uh, works at the New York Times. So somebody said to us, "Make it like the New York Times," and we went, "Of course, we'll do that." And then we (laughs) left the meeting. We were like, "What does that (laughs) mean?" and I spoke to my mate and he gave me a great answer yeah exactly (laughs) he he gave me a great answer he was like the way this is um, Rory Smith from the New York Times who's a very very good football writer and he said you take one small aspect and you grow it from there so if you read anything in the New York Times and it's true of more modern publications now like The Athletic as well Mm. quite often it starts with a tiny little detail and the detail can be anything but it's always a bit of colour like if it's about a football transfer it doesn't start with Philip Coutinho signed for Bayern Munich it starts with something like yeah, the, the, it something to do with his blooming hand luggage yeah, or something yeah, on his yeah, flight yeah. over it's a tiny detail that you expand out from and that's something that I thought about a lot when it came to doing links it's that idea of one little thing yeah. one piece of detail that you can see before you grow cuz that's what I took cowards. from it
2: as well listening to it there, there are moments where and I think I was trying to simplify it actually but it, it was things like it was emotions and senses yeah and you know the the some of the interview I think in the interview with John Artis that you can hear seagulls or uh, there's yeah. another interview with someone yeah, else where exactly you're you're yeah. eating and it's almost an excuse to go don't worry sorry about the sound quality <laughs> cuz someone's going to be eating yeah. but it takes you there. Yeah, and that's you, an amazing thing about yeah. podcast and radio, isn't it? No,
1: you have to. I mean, I mean, the, the truth is that um, it, the, it lives or dies by being able to take someone to not only a place but a time, yes. and that's where the music came in. You know, everything um, had been chosen for a very specific reason, and that is to try and transport you from wherever you are listening to this to 1966, in New Jersey, or. 2017 Patterson, New Jersey or wherever it is that we're going um, everything has to be focused that because you don't have obviously visual ability to to throw things in archive was really important you know there's nothing like hearing a bit of original archive that just takes you right there so the process itself was really uh, different from anything we had done before Um, we obviously had never done anything over such a long period of time something that was new to me I work in audio, so if I edit something, I do a long interview, mm. I will listen to it and I will edit it as I go along. Here, we have things transcribed and we picked out and then edited off the back of what we wanted, which I know sounds very technical and geeky. I'd never done that before, right. and it was a bit of a revelation because it enabled me to piece the story together in a much more fluent way. And yeah, I think I think the scripting like i would never taken so much time. Like we poured over. We had we well, the, the scripts that we wrote. We worked it out
3: at the end. Was like it would if 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 you put the scripts we wrote together and some of them obviously got tossed out and started again into a book, it would have been an easy like 450,
2: 500 really? page novel. Yeah. Like, No, no that, doubt. Because that's why I found it stunning. There's just so much. There's so much to tell. There's so much evidence. There's so yeah. many tapes, and that, that Ken Klonsky is that, is that yeah, right when the That's right. tapes come, and that yeah. uh, that is the kind of the catalyst, I guess, for for it with the, with the story that you've got this whole thing that you can now uncover. It's just so much. So to make those decisions, did you at times have to be? I, I find that difficult to be ruthless, but also to be fair. Uh,
1: I think there's there's a couple of things to that. The first thing is that there's lots of information that we received that we got about the story that just isn't in the story, Mm. that isn't in our telling of it. And that is because the primary decision that we came to was... Only facts that we can corroborate, so no conjecture, no, well, some people think this, but actually there's no basis for it. So absolutely everything you hear has some evidence behind it. No talking heads, no that talking heads, policy primary sources, only people who were there, not you know, people of people or people who've studied it or yes. things like that. only the people who were there in their own words. And actually, when you get to that point it becomes a little bit easier because you can say well I know X thinks that but he's got no basis for that, it's just going to confuse yeah. wow. the story more, out it goes okay. um, and yeah I think, I think actually that was quite a liberating part yeah. of the process because it, we did have discussions quite often about elements and bits of the story and names and people as the investigation goes on like people who are, are named by other people but if we couldn't get anything on it there was no benefit in our saying and we've also found yes this,
2: because we can't add anything yeah. to it we and can't you, corroborate right. and we you set a
1: ridiculously what? high bar basically
3: yes. that, that's how we yeah. were ruthless yeah. we and were that's ridiculous. why I'm here talking to you now because yeah.
2: I was just like this is this is a lot of work like, yeah. this is a higher level than things I'd, I'd listened to before and it was great but it also I think it was very um, it felt comfortable and it felt like at times like I was saying a bit raw at times and I like that yeah. I thought that was good yeah. um, I want to talk about some of the characters yeah. involved oh, oh, and how that uh, has a- affected your thoughts on things a little bit um, do you feel like the whole thing has affected your thoughts on, on different subjects
1: uh, beyond the tapes like in general life and how oh, yeah. I view people uh, yeah I think it's difficult not to I mean it's a it's, uh, uh, study in people's reaction to an event yes and what they think and how time changes their perception so yeah i think it's it'd be difficult not to go through that process at so that
2: so that leaves me on perfectly because uh, one thing for me i think that the evolution of, of racism um, in that period of time in america but even you know to this day we're still all these things are still going on and it is still evolving but i found it interesting that the first case of 1967 the second case is 6 76, so sorry um but you can almost feel sort of the clouds of racism, like going away a tiny bit. People, society evolving in terms of their racism. What did you learn about racism in America in the in the sixties and seventies? What were you surprised by? Is there anything you were surprised? By? Um, I think that um, I think that the cloud
1: of racism covered the entire period and whilst it might have been ever slightly less of a shade ten years after the first trial it's still, it was still, uh, it still it, it, amazingly strong I, I kept going back to the original uh, my, uh, my original point that we were talking about um, when we were doing the first episode so the first episode we introduced Ruben as a, as a character as a man his, his, his upbringing now, he was born in 1937 He had a relationship with his grandfather. His grandfather was still alive when Reuben was born, and I think he didn't die until he was six or seven. His grandfather was alive during the slavery era, okay? And that is, uh, as a white man from the UK, something very difficult to get my head around, that Reuben Carter had a relationship with someone in his family who was a slave I mean, I sometimes it still sends a shiver down my back. That, yeah, that permeates. Yeah, that is the starting point of understanding the racism in this story. I think. I think that the
3: the frame. This is where sort of framing comes into it. If it wasn't for the fact that it wasn't, it isn't such a horrifically evident issue in America today. This Probably wouldn't be a podcast because again, the fact I think it's the fact that you know we were kind of hoping people listen to this and without needing to be told, people think, Christ, it's not got any better. Mm. In fact, some people would say, and some people have, um, Johnny yeah. Carter, Ruben's cousin, says this in episode one, it's damn near the same, if not worse, today. And the framing thing is important to us, I think, because. If it weren't for having the tapes, we wouldn't hear Reuben Carter talking about his own childhood in a very racist America. And we are two middle-class white blokes. Like, we have no three. right... To, three. <laughs> we have no right to tell that story yeah. without Reuben Carter's voice, I think. So again, that's another thing that, that turned this from potentially being a standalone documentary mm. into being a podcast. That we had that extra voice that we could tell. And the other thing is, you know, we met at least one racist during this and and that is a thing you know i've never spoken to anybody before who clearly has a problem with in this case black people and doing that speaking to someone who was of that time it it does bring it home when you actually meet somebody who clearly has those views or had those views do you know what I mean? Yeah.
2: It's very, it's, yeah. Particularly it's... when they're in a position of power. Mm. You know, <coughs> well, that kind of goes back to what I was saying about that, being affected by, by stuff. Because I think that's that's an amazing position that we're in, that we can go and look into stories that can change the way you're thinking about things. That's the whole point of this series for me, is to get a chance to come up and talk to you guys and understand that. Because another thing I, I wanted to ask, was, it did it entered my mind as a white middle-class guy as well. Were you nervous about being the guys who told the story... Considering that you're
1: white, yeah. Oh yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. I mean, um, the truth. There's a, there's a few things to say about that. The first is that it wasn't that the BBC came up with this idea and they looked for two producers and they picked <laughs> yeah, yeah, two, yeah. two middle class white guys. Um, <laughs> yeah. You know, you have um, seen the lineup. Yeah, yeah, exactly. yeah. Those those yeah. two there. yeah. <laughs> so you know, um, but uh, so so it was an idea that we went forward. At, but it does. Uh, it does identify, it does um, highlight the lack of um, diversity within the media industry, yep. because obviously, if there were more uh, people from ethnic, other ethnic backgrounds, the chances are that they would have the same ideas and they would get them a commission yep. so uh, we are conscious of that we were con- we were desperately desperately trying to understand as much as we could, never take anything for granted. Challenge ourselves, challenge our kind of um, you know the, the subconscious bias that that yes. I guess we all have, yes and um, and tell the st- and let the people who are in this story tell the story. That's why. Well, that's it. I was I was nervous when I thought you know this is a story that
3: we're telling and mm-hmm. how do we do it justice when we're not from that time. But I was not nervous as soon as I realised that actually we're not telling this story. Well, yeah. They're telling because there story. Was, was, was telling his, like, his own story. Yeah, yeah. 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 there were
2: moments where well, I was like. Well. Come on, Steve. What do you, mean? What do you yeah. think? What do you think? You didn't, which I think is a, a smart, smart thing to do because the story's not about us. That was the other thing yes, we were really,
1: course. really keen to do. That and, and this, I'm not having to go. Uh, other, well, I am about to have a go at the podcast, <laughs> but I, I'm not going to name any. But yeah. you sometimes listen to podcasts and there's two things that often strike me the first is that it suddenly becomes about the person who's telling the story well I don't really care about the person telling the story unless that, they are directly uh, well unless it's, you know yeah, I mean? yeah. but, unless they're story yeah, yeah. exactly because, because that implies to me that the story you were covering in the first place isn't that strong if you've got to tell me about your story mm-hmm. unless it directly relates and the second thing is that there's no flab. So there's not like we tried to get hold of Dave and the phone just rang and,
2: <laughs> yeah, and
1: yeah. no one answered. And we tried three <laughs> days later and we got no... Like, there's none of that. We're just like... We only if, tell you stuff if we've got it. That's, I mean? that's it. And, and there's none of this the chase. Because believe me, the process of getting hold of some of the people who we did get hold of took a long yeah. time. But that's about us. The people aren't interested. I don't think or they shouldn't be interested when the story is so strong
2: itself give me a brief version of that process of trying to get those people then
3: well with I think um overall I probably got 90% of the pro-Rubin people and Joel probably got well actually maybe even 100% of the anti-Rubin people Um, and actually that so the pro-Rubin people were quite easy to be honest because somebody like John Artis isn't that difficult to find and once you find a couple of people, you end up finding more because at the start, we thought we were doing this very pro Reuben Carter story and everybody was very keen to get on board with yeah. that. The negative ones are harder, mainly because they all feel that their side of the story has never been told, which is true. And, you know, with some of them, there's probably a good reason for that. And for some of them, we thought, you know, they definitely deserve... Their chance to tell it. You did a lot more of the work than I did, but it was basically a domino effect, wasn't it? It was once you got one negative car to person, and once they were happy with the treatment they got from us, then they would give us somebody else.
1: Yeah, it's about That's building relationships and, and explaining to people and convincing them through your actions that you are genuinely giving them a platform to tell their story and that you aren't giving opinion. You are allowing them to have their say. Now, some of those people, in, in, in my opinion, which I'm <laughs> <laughs> not giving, but some of the people, when you listen to them, you think, well, that's, that's clearly racist. <laughs> but, 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 you know, you, we've, that's, that's for them. That's them in their own words. Yeah. But, um, yeah, so the, the process was difficult. It is about relationship building. It does take a long time and there are bumps in the road it's like anything but but eventually uh and i think also the the big benefit of being able to see someone face to face like emails are great phone calls are great but when you actually get to meet someone yes uh, you could you know you get a measure of the person that you're you're dealing with and and thankfully and that that process yes. got us
3: maybe well maybe either the most important or second most important find of this whole thing which is that the son of the lead detective mm. and this is a lead detective who'd been painted as a, a you know as basically being the antichrist in fact he was described as being the runner-up to the antichrist yeah. by one of the interviewees in the podcast yeah. Um, his son spoke to us when he'd never spoke to anybody before and it was because you know joel was able to to you know give him assurances that he would be You know, handled properly and and given his say and treated fairly, that's the way to put it. And he gave us a box of his father's old files, which included so many little little things which we could then expect. Like, you know, a tape, a tape of his dad literally sitting down in front of a microphone in the seventies and saying, This is Lieutenant Vincent D. Simone. This is the story of this case as I see it. What I say from this moment on
1: is off the record. Because there's no audio of him. He doesn't... I mean, it, it was a time before YouTube. Yeah. Who'd have thought there yes, was a yeah. time before YouTube? But um, so, yeah, and you know, that's a really good point. I, I, um, we, I can see it very clearly. We were in a breakfast restaurant um, in New Jersey, and we'd agreed to meet for breakfast just to chat, just, you know, we're not going to record anything. And I remember at the end of it, he looked up and he said, you know what? I like you two guys. we were like, yeah, of course you do. You're only human. And he said, uh, hey, I've got a box of stuff. When my dad left the police force or when he died, the, the, they gave me all his private files. I don't suppose you'd be interested in that, would you? And we were like, oh, wow. yes. Probably interested in that. Yes, we could be convinced. So but
3: This is actually another example of how high we, how high we sort of set the bar for... Not just to do with people, but to do with information, is that Jim D. Simone, this this guy who's the son of the lead detective, told us he believed it was possible that he had one of the guns used in the murders in his basement.
2: She <laughs> definitely told you that, yeah, yeah. And we well, yeah. spent
3: yeah. quite a lot of time thinking about: do we try and sort of go and see this or whatever? <laughs> but you know, through through a, a longer process, that- we decided. There is no way of of this. There is no way this is correct. And we spoke to a few people and it just became clear that it wasn't mm-hmm. the case. So we didn't include it because we thought, well, what's the point of having a part of our thing which is? And he says he might have one of the right. guns, and, and then we looked yeah. into it. Oh, we didn't. Yeah, yeah. yeah,
2: yeah. What, uh, was there moments during those conversations where you're you're one side of the desk and you just go? You just put your hand on each other's knee or something like that we've got some not like yeah. that yeah not over, far I, i'm it.
1: not off the restraining order but yeah <laughs> yes. no um i yeah there, there were lots of times um during that we'd have a, we'd have an interview with and the eyes yeah yeah, yeah no, I, i'd catch it and you would be like oh my god I, oh i can't yeah, believe yeah. they said that again we turned up um to a meeting um with one of the guests and we knew a piece of information Uh, that we hadn't had corroborated about uh, the relationship between one of the people in the series and the police. And before we'd even sat down, annoyingly before we'd even turned on the, the recording devices, we got talking with the person and they confirmed something that was quite remarkable about the relationship that the police had with... Uh, someone in the <laughs> <appearance>. series, <laughs> yeah. and um, yeah, that that was that was quite a moment. And I, yeah. we both were like. We didn't, even, we didn't even have to ask a question, we just offered the information. And the name of that person. And the name, was, uh, well, <laughs> yeah, no, they're still alive, so I might, yeah, I might, I might right. refrain I from that. saying the that. The though. classic
3: example, I suppose, is um, in the very first episode, there is a moment when we're speaking to Ruben's cousin, yes. and he says, this, this was the biggest eye-opening moment of the whole thing when we were recording this interview, and this is pr- pretty much the only interview we didn't do in person, or one of the very yeah. few so got introduced to Ruben's cousin and this is when we'd come back from the first about four trips in the end to America to make this thing. And he was like, yeah, and of course, you know, the guy who did it, we only found out <laughs> that years later. And we were like, what? <laughs> <laughs>
2: who is the guy who did it? And, I mean, you're, that's the in talent, there, isn't it? That, yeah, that, that's that's right, it? Yeah, that's You can right hear that. Watch, no, 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 who what, is what, it? What, what, who, is what, it? What, who is it? Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, um,
3: is it? yeah, again, yeah. without giving anything away, we tried very hard throughout the series going forward and we did eventually meet up with him in person mm. to see if if we could collate enough information and show him that we had found enough to convince him that it was
2: okay right. to to, uh, to, to reveal who yeah. that
3: person was and whether or not that happens.
2: You yeah, can, would have can, to listen, listen to listen Yeah, to <laughs> uh, let's talk about uh, Desimone, uh, the the investigator who was very very certain that Ruben Carr and John Artis had done this. Yeah, um, eventually, eventually, yeah. yes. Uh, from a broader point of view, I, I wanted to know what your thoughts are on, on that certainty in investigations. And also maybe, um, is it Patsy uh, Valentine? Yeah, yeah, the eyewitness. Uh, the, the big eye, uh, mm-hmm. eyewitness. Uh, both those two things, I think uh, normally a lot of people, well, I guess it depends where you come from and your upbringing and all those things, but some people go, oh, police are good, police are always doing the right things. Or if someone said they saw it, then they saw it. Um, what are your views on on all of that kind of stuff that the, the, the power of a witness and the certainty of a of it's so a small isn't it
3: like we, one of the things we learned is, is how unreliable eyewitness testimonies really are
2: Yeah,
1: it's the very worst form of evidence that there can be. And this is a case, remember, that has no forensic, real forensic evidence. It has, um, I mean, it's, it's crying out for a bit of evidence that you can touch and hold, and there isn't. And all there really is, is what people saw. And it is just so unreliable. And not maliciously, not because people want to give false information... Just because the it's, it's, a it's a stressful situation, yes, you know, you, and the mind does things to protect you in stressful situations, and then you know time passes, and sometimes after a week, you misremember things. After a year, you misremember mm. things. and it was very frustrating because this case relies so heavily on pe- what people say they saw. and I think the interesting thing is that I think by and large, everyone who says what they saw. Believes that that is what they saw. Yeah. Even though that, if you took all of them, that can't no. possibly be true because they uh, all counted.
2: The way I looked at it, I, I think people you obviously you need evidence. So people end up going, "Well, your eyes are like a camera," mm. but actually, not, there's so much agenda right. in your mind yeah. that, and so many things conflicting with it. And then, like you say, it, it can that film fades as well. Uh, it really that really took me by surprise. I mean, I've, I've probably had those thoughts uh, otherwise, but really, that eyewitnesses are, aren't great witnesses, are No,
3: they not either. at all. They're really not. No. And, um, and again, you know, well, I mean, part of the reason there wasn't any forensic evidence is because this really occurred before proper forensics mm. yeah, existed. Yeah, that, yeah. It was stuff like, you know, paraffin tests were what they used to see if you had gunshot residue on your hands. This is one of the key things of this case. They didn't do that. So, Ruben Carter and John Artis are there in police custody, and they didn't give them this test. Um, they did give them lie detector tests, and again, even the results of those are uh, well, disputed. Yes. This cost, to so. yes, yes, it's exactly. all in the past. Uh, let's talk about Bob
2: Dylan and his uh, impact in Bob this, Bob, yeah. I found that really interesting as well. That you just think, oh, I was always a bit angry at the fact that if if a celebrity, it, you've seen it really recently with um, with Donald Trump and uh, ASAP Rocky, ASAP Rocky's in Sweden, and then so because it's ASAP Rocky, that means. Donald Trump gets involved. I mean, Donald Trump gets involved in everything. But anyway, but or, or things with like Kim Kardashian yeah. lends her influence to something. But that same thing was happening back in 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 the seventies with with Bob Dylan and Muhammad Ali and so many people. But what I found interesting was that that media attention is only only helpful to a point, isn't it? it that, it can yeah. actually be detrimental as well. I think the first thing to say is I don't think Trump would be jumping to Reuben Carter's defence. <laughs> no, no, I think that's
1: fair. Um, yeah. uh, yeah, I don't yeah. think even Bob Dylan got that Well, much well. no, no, quite, and <laughs> certainly not Reuben Carter. Yeah, I mean, uh, no, it's an interesting point because um, we met several people on both sides who came to the conclusion that that like cause celeb element of the second trial ended up actually being more detrimental than helpful. Um, and um, you know, whilst it of course brought attention to the case, mm. it's not always the right attention. Yeah. Um, and yeah, because Sel Selwyn Rabb said that, do not The New York journalist who covered it at the time, who was uh, you know, um, I would say on Carter's side, but but you know, came to the conclusion that Carter was completely innocent. And he told us that actually all that uh, media circus. Mm. Uh, Contributed really to the to the conviction, um, the second conviction.
3: Because any juror on this case would have been totally aware of everything that's going on. So suddenly, your your own personal feelings about people like Muhammad Ali, yes, come, come to the fore. And actually, one of the things that Rubin says on the tapes that he was told um, in the build-up to him being freed the first time is, you don't have enough black people mm. sort of on your side. So they went on basically a quest to enlist the help of of black celebrities, which is something that they eventually managed to achieve. But again, when you talk about things like unconscious bias, there will have been a lot of people who learned about this case only through that media campaign. So it isn't always... It's a double-edged sword. You need attention. yeah, But also, if you're living in a community which has a lot of racism in it, you're still when you're when you're then
2: thrust into the spotlight anything that happens can also impact negatively on you. and and it puts such a spotlight on your character Obviously, years later you got the OJ Simpson trial and his his uh, the caricature that he'd created that kind of helped him out yeah. in, in the end of it um whereas with Reuben Carter like you said that he actually as a boxer he, he portrayed that sort of nasty image mm. which actually then once you've got that spotlight, that probably gets it out into people's minds more and more, I would imagine. And uh, yeah. to be fair, like that's obviously wrong. That shouldn't happen, yes. clearly. But
3: Reuben Carter would say exactly what you've just said, because he says it on the text. <laughs> he basically says, in fact, not basically, he does say, I was as much to blame for being convicted of these murders as any you know, potentially corrupt police mm-hmm. officer because of the way he painted himself. Um, and his daughter said that to us as well Theodora Carter said, said yeah. exactly the same
1: thing the, the authorities were able to use the image that he'd cultivated to convince an already yeah. unsure Absolutely. and unsettled white community in a changing racial era that this man was a bad person and should be off the streets and the last point about Dylan is that the authorities could use that as an us against them so here they portrayed Dylan and all the other stars that came forward for him as the, the liberal elite, the Hollywood liberal elite, here to want to change, to, to tell small town America, small white town America, that you're bad people. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, again, as I say, the authorities were able to say to the jury, this small select group of people from this relatively small part of New Jersey, you know, don't be swayed by this liberal elite. We know what's right and we know what's wrong. Yeah,
3: yeah. I think that's kind of what I was trying to get at, is they went from being the underdogs, if you like, to the opposite of that. Suddenly the prosecution were the underdogs who were sort of fighting against this media machine. So actually in terms of the way the whole thing was framed, mm. the prosecution were able to flip that on its head. Yeah.
2: So obviously there's a lot of dark moments in in making this the story itself. Um, I think it's always important to try and look at some of the the good bits that you can find from it as well um what there's some for me one is the values and the strength of John Artis is Mm. one and then another character who again if you listen to it or look at the story Lesra uh, and the impact that he makes on their lives of two people that are in prison and it looks like they've got no hope at all um those two things for me I thought were absolutely incredible and aspiring and, and positive in something that's so, so dark. What were the sort of nice bits that you were able to take from this this project?
1: I mean, there were lots of great bits. I mean, the tapes are 40 hours long and, and Rubin is a hilarious character, in a good way. I don't mean like, not a clown. Yeah, yeah. He's like, he's a very funny man. And so you can listen through and anecdotes and so there was lots of fun there. John, as you, I mean, John is the star for me because he has been through so much, and he has a fabulous laugh, and uh, he's just so, just such a nice person. I mean, that sounds a terrible things, yeah. Not a kid, I'm damning people with fake Yeah, bread. he's just good company, mm. uh, engaging. But he shouldn't be a nice
2: person, should he? If That's that was game. me,
1: I remember saying to him, I, we we had dinner after the interview. I remember saying, you know, if that was me, I'd be Bitter. I'd be, mm. I'd be angry at never, the world. You'd never recover. I wouldn't. I would, there's no way. I just, I'd spend the whole of my life resenting everything. And you know, if you, you just, you just roll, you just, <laughs> everything just
3: rolls off his back. And the, the other side of that, which just tells you what a guy he is, is that, um, and it's probably an indication that we did a fairly decent job on this series. Is that not everybody we spoke to during the series is very happy with the series. <laughs> Because there okay. are a lot of, I mean, a it's all, pro, pro, lots of pro rubin people are furious mm. that we have even cast any aspersion on the possibility that he could, that he could mm. have been involved. Like, even if you come to the the conclusion as a listener that he wasn't, they're still not happy that it was even on the table. Yes. Um, John's fine and it's John's (laughs) life you know there there are are these other people who you know some of them were close friends of Ruben who were fuming Mm. John's fine I I speak to John WhatsApp to me last night I speak to John minimum two or three times a month we get on absolutely brilliantly he is a lovely human but he knows and we had to ask him you know difficult questions at times we didn't outwardly say to him were you there did you do it because you don't need to because you, th- those answers come out from your, yeah. from your discussion yeah. um, but the, just to tell you two very quick stories from the tapes which just made me howl with laughter and again sometimes with Ruben you don't necessarily know if he's trying to be funny but the first <laughs> one was um, and they're, they're both in the series the first one is when he talks about um, his being in prison and he says he says you know, you're, in the, you're, in, you're in the interrogation room and that there's no natural light in the room. And they take away all semblance of, of what day it is and what time it is. And then he starts talking about like the interrogation of, of potential terrorist suspects and how he says, you know, this all comes from America in the 1960s and how they were just shut down. You wouldn't know where you were or when you were. Anyway, thankfully I had a watch on. <laughs> so, right? Yeah. And then he tells another story where he's <laughs> talking about his daughter coming to see him in prison. And it's a really earnest story. And again, his, his daughter's a. Are- a wonderful human and interviewing her was was amazing but she um but but he says about that he was like you know she came to see me in prison and she said daddy why can't you come home and so i wrote her this poem and i called the poem freedom and the poem is all about um catching a bird but not being able to to keep the bird as a pet because it should be free and he tells this this poem he reads the poem and he says i don't know if she understood but I certainly felt better and you're just like the self-obsession of this guy yeah. and that's actually a phrase that, that got us in a little bit of hot water with his friends Is describing Reuben Carter as self-obsessed but right. he was yeah. he was self and, that, and that's yeah, that, doesn't, boxes, that doesn't make him a murderer yeah, no exactly he was very yeah, self-obsessed
1: yeah. I, I think I just have a couple of things that, that, um, that made me laugh so uh, again one from the tapes he's in conversation with the guy who, who recorded the, the tapes did the book um, and he, he's talking about his life before the first arrest and um, about how, uh, and how life, life evolved and that youngsters go out and they get in trouble and they get into fights and they get drunk <laughs> and the interviewer says but, but you never did that did you and Ruben just goes yeah sure I did of course I did and you're like, ah, oh, okay. You know, it, it was. it's, it's funny. He's, he actually was a very interesting man. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure I believed everything that came out of his mouth, but he was a very entertaining and thoughtful person. And the only other thing is that we met a guy called Fred Hogan, who's a very important part of the story. Lovely man, great man. Best Again, still in touch with us. Uh, I'm going out to New York soon. I'd be delighted to meet up with him. You know, we you know again one of the people who's not upset even though we didn't always say the nicest things or we implied that there was counter stuff yeah. anyway we get to his place in new jersey and he's very welcoming he's put on a spread for us and got sandwiches and biscuits and fizzy drinks and he says I uh, says, well, first I'll, I'll show you my little, like, Ruben's corner. And he's got, like, a little homage to, to Ruben. And he's got, like, I don't know, like a signed photo and one of his boxing gloves. And then and then there's something just, there's a small round thing that's just lying on the mantelpiece. And he picks it up and he says, you know what this is? And it was, like, one of those moments where we looked at each other like, no, uh, no please tell her. And he has... So Reuben Carter had a false eye from a, uh, a fight that he got in prison and bad operation. Anyway, uh, and uh, <laughs> Fred was given Reuben's eye when Reuben passed on. And not only does he own the eye, which in itself is a enough. little bit weird, <laughs> it is, is it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> quite. Not only that he owns it, that he has it on display, mm. but then he then goes on to tell us that um, he can wear it as a pendant and that yes. if we really like and before we even had a chance to say no we don't like he's getting the necklace out and he's wearing it round his neck for the rest of the interview so but that kind of he's got, the,
2: was it in the he's got the island. he's the eye he's got, got the eye the island, hurricane. hurricane yeah, yeah we'll
1: go, we'll, we'll
2: keep an eye on you it shows the, the power of the pun and how that can yeah, <laughs> you know, <laughs> you've got to anything. any lengths yeah, <laughs> yeah. to, to manifest it um, final very final thing um, cause we've got to go um, for anyone wanting to make uh, take on a big story um, what advice would you give them in in any media? I mean I think probably the biggest piece of advice that I would give
3: them is something that I uh, talked about earlier which is go with the story, don't, don't stick with what you've got, don't think oh but actually this is the piece I'm making, wherever it takes you go with it and the reality is if it's taking you in a different direction than the direction you thought you were going in then you pretty much know
1: you've got something brand new there Um, I think think that would be number one I think that's a very good piece of advice uh, I think and the other thing I guess again that we touched on is no one knows what ends up on the cutting room floor you know uh, and um, be brave enough to take out anything that comes close to making it anything other than as lean and as slick as you can make it and sometimes you have to it's really good to work with someone else because you might think oh I
2: have to have that bit in and they'll say we don't need it. Yeah, yeah. You can get too close, can't you? Oh, you can definitely. Bit, yeah. yeah, yeah. Amazing. Amazing advice. Uh, thank you for sharing your time. No worries. Yeah, uh, uh, right, guys. Topics. First things first. I mean, look, this is on my channel. So subscribe to my channel first, okay? Then after you've done that, go on to iTunes and follow two podcasts. This one, The Process, but most importantly, actually, The Hurricane Tapes. It is fantastic. Uh, it's a joy to chat to you guys thank you so much much. Uh, unfortunately there'll be a sequel Will there (laughs) wow (laughs) you might be
1: surprised really there isn't going to be a
3: second series but there'll be something but there is going to (laughs) be around January to mark a year since the series started we will be making a special
2: programme amazing yeah I might that not come out in January, but Yeah, <laughs> yeah we'll see. Yeah, 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 Oh wow. Okay, well so go go listen to it and then you can enjoy the the special when it comes out. Thank you. Thank you.